0: There's so much waste in the sales process today where you know, we're doing things just because we have to like go through this laundry list of tasks. And it does take away from our ability, especially in high volume environments, to speak to the specific value it's gonna to provide to that customer. Behind the scenes, it was a small group of people that were doing everything.
1: Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. I wanna know how this insane growth actually happened. What are you doing when no one's around, no one's looking? Are you just showing up and doing the minimum, or are you approaching it like a pro? Be a student of the game. And a quick note, this episode is actually brought to you by our friends at Demandbase. Uh, Demandbase helps B2B companies hit their revenue goals using fewer resources. Now, how do they do that? Uh, They use the power of AI to identify and engage the accounts and buying groups most likely to purchase They combine sales and marketing data with their own validated B2B data and then use AI to create account intelligence that informs every step of your buyer's journey. Uh, Super accurate company contact, technographic engagement, and intent data right where you work every day. And you can work right within your CRM, engagement tools, browsers, literally anywhere you're doing your workflows and it'll allow you to start spotting opportunities earlier and orchestrate smarter sales and marketing motions. Uh, And you can see this all live uh, at demandmace.com. That's demandbase.com. And check out their sales intelligence product tour. Uh, I think you'll be super impressed. Hello, and welcome back to the GTM podcast. It's your host, Scott Barker. Thanks, as always, for rocking with us and lending us your eardrums for the next 40 minutes or so. Uh, we always try to speak through real stories from real operators, people that have actually been in the trenches, built some of the more successful SaaS companies out there. Um, and we just try and figure out what worked, what didn't, how shit actually went down. And I've got the perfect guest to do that today. I am joined by Zach lorick uh, Zach, welcome, man. Uh,
0: thanks, Scott. I am
1: honored to be here. Appreciate uh, you thinking of me. Pumped to have you, man. And, uh, straight off of a school engagement. You were dropping the kids off at school, picking them up. What was, what was that?
0: Uh, we had the annual fun run at my kids' school. They raised a bunch of money. They ran three laps around the field, got all dressed up. So I was there this morning helping to facilitate that, taking photos, getting the kids pumped. They were excited. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome.
1: That must fill your cup uh, after I imagine an extremely busy week. We are yes. recording this on a Friday. So you guys all get the... The Friday vibes, the Friday energy, uh, whenever you're, you're listening. To it's this. nice
0: to get away from the Zoom and on to watch kids just be happy running around the field. It's hard to go wrong. Totally.
1: There. Totally. Totally. Um, and just quickly for the listeners, so uh, Zach is currently the head of global solutions consulting at Rippling. Uh, super incredible career to date. Uh, previous to that was the VP of solutions engineering at Slack. Uh, you were at Salesforce. You were at Box. And you know, I was looking at your background before we jumped on this call, and I feel like growth investors should just follow whatever you do. You know, you you were at Box in twenty fifteen, Salesforce in two thousand five, Slack in two thousand eighteen. Now you are at Rippling, obviously such a hot hyper growth company. How are you picking these companies? This can't all be luck. It's funny, uh, and I mean this with the mo-
0: most humility. You are not the first person to say that because. I would sort of, you know, I think anybody should think about their career uh, as a growth investor would think about where they want to put their capital. Um, And you can imagine the most valuable capital that you have as an individual is your time. So I've always thought about companies in a very like particular uh, intentional way before joining. And I think ultimately there's a lot of luck involved as well. I mean, there are a few companies I've worked for that were not successful in the monetary sense, but, you know, ultimately I've just followed the people. I've followed great people. And the people that I followed are also those that I think you know have really good judgment values are good human beings but also I understand the dynamics of a solid product, a uh, big total addressable market uh, and people are always a great proxy for whether or not you want to work somewhere It's as simple as that
1: It can almost be that simple and I'm sure there is more that that goes into it. I guess you know looking back earlier in your career, how did you start? Identifying, because we've all had great leaders we've worked for, not so great leaders we've worked for. I guess, how have you been able to identify the ones that are great and continue to follow them where they go? Yeah, and
0: it's a good question. I think it, you know, that when you think about, you know, your career over the long term and the concept of following people, you also have to think about that early in your career. And the advice I usually give people that are starting their career is, Go someplace where you're surrounded by people you know you can learn from, and they're the type of human beings that you know share similar professional and personal values to you. They don't have to be the same type of people as you. But when I say values, it's not like having the same hobbies or the same background. It's um, you know they're focused on the same professional achievements uh, and outcomes that they want to achieve. And uh, I think it's easy for somebody to you know, drop in somewhere and throughout the interview process to understand if the The composition of that company aligns to your professional values and if there are people that you think you can learn from and i think it's easy also on the flip side of that to get distracted by uh, a company name uh, a stock price uh hype that's out on the internet be it technology or, or business hype uh and get distracted by that and jump into a company that doesn't align to your professional values and uh i think you know early on i always looked to work at places or for people that uh, I thought that I would learn from or had something to learn from. And, and I'll tell a story later about this, but at, uh, at Salesforce, I didn't know anything about Salesforce before I joined. Like that was pure luck. It was in 2005, I was working at another company that I had moved from San Diego to San Francisco. And uh, there was somebody at that company who said, hey, I think you could probably make, you know, twice as much money as you're making right now, which was a very, very small amount in San Francisco, I'll say it was uh, like a barely livable wage for San Francisco. Even you know before kids, when I was living in a one-bedroom apartment, and they said, "Hey, you should check out this Salesforce company. I think that you could make a little bit more money." And I went to check it out. And while I did do some research on the company and to understand like the total addressable market, obviously the technology was you know taking off at that time. What really impressed me were the the variety of people that I got to speak through, speak to throughout the interview process, uh, and that's really what sold me on Salesforce. And I lucked into getting that first role that I, I got hired for. And the reason that that's so important is that you know, the first company that you land at, those are the people that are gonna be they're going to make the make up the foundation of your network as you go forward, and that's how it makes it much easier to go to that next place. If you work at some place for four years, uh, and you see some of those great people, you know, move up and on into another role or into another company. Then you kind of get those are proxies for understanding where you want to take the next step in your career. Uh, and I've been lucky enough to follow a lot of people from Salesforce, from Box, from Optimize, various places that I've worked at that are really high quality people that have you know, sort of led me in the right direction.
1: The compounding effect or compound interest that comes from building long-term relationships with people, obviously work outside of work is is really hard to to quantify. You know, there's that there's that trust component. And when you have the trust baked in speed of decision making goes way up uh, you don't have to double check each other's things and you can just you can you can go a lot faster you know with with people you trust what's the um I guess what's the longest time you've worked with someone is there is there some that you've like worked with at like three of these companies that that just keep popping up
0: yes I mean I've worked with there's there are many people with whom I worked at three companies. Or more. Yeah. And I mean, was, you know, I, again, started the career at Salesforce. That's where I got to meet a people. Like they, what I think Salesforce got right very early on is they hired people from a wide variety of backgrounds. And the first role that I started in was a role called premier support analyst and look across those people that were hired in that class. They came from so many different backgrounds, different universities, different uh, even upbringings uh, into a place where they were just a lot of smart people working together Uh, helping to solve problems for customers. And then those people have graduated up on to a lot of different roles, both within Salesforce. Some are still there, have been there for 18 years. Uh, And, you know, some went on to be senior executives at other companies, to be founders. Uh, And the point being, I think the importance of finding a company like that where you're surrounded by really smart people and treating those people right Knowing that you know the your career will last for forty to fifty years, perhaps you know, given you know, the length of life is continues to expand, uh, you just you know that's I think it's such an important focus. It's all about the humans and you know the problems that you're solving together.
1: Yeah, I guess trying to uh, put that into uh, succinct advice for some of the listeners. So let's say I'm a listener. I don't have Salesforce on my resume. I didn't. I didn't pick one of these winners, and I'm like, man, I just want to go and and find that. I guess is the advice then you know, strip away the company and go think of people in your network that you would absolutely love to learn and like go to battle with. And is that sort of the, what people should be thinking about?
0: I think so. Yes. Um, and early on as well, there are opportunities depending on, you know, where you're getting started. Uh, you know, the consulting route can be a good way to build some foundational skills to take that next step or a pivot into like a more tech centric role. But, um, I would say that there are many more mechanisms today than there were when I started my career to network really effectively and to be a part of mm-hmm. virtual communities, in-person communities. Um, but I would, my, my succinct advice would be to meet as many people as you can in the industry that, that you think you want to work in, um, and eventually you'll get to a place where you find the right people that you want to work with.
1: Then you got your tribe, and just rock and roll with that tribe. And uh, yeah, yeah, you can you can move mountains. Um, awesome, man. Well. Transitioning a little bit, would love to hear uh, a story of which I'm sure you have many from the days of Box, Salesforce, Slack, Rippling. There's probably, you know, hundreds we could cover, but I'll 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 leave it with you with where you want to go. It sounded like you might be transporting us back to 2005 with this story at, at the time at Salesforce. If I heard that correctly in the beginning,
0: yeah, I think you know if we're on sort of the the track of early career advice, uh, this is advice for both. Hiring managers and folks that are going through the process. Uh, the best career move I ever made was uh, I was you know at Salesforce and I had you know some friends that were moving into a sales role and I was fascinated by sales. You know I read uh, I think it's called the Sales Advantage. It's like a, a Dale Carnegie book about you know sales process fundamentals. And I was just really excited about like this science that you could employ uh, to help somebody make a decision and move forward. And the fact that there were like monetary Uh, incentives tied to that uh, performance. I thought that was really exciting. Uh, But there wasn't an obvious role for me. And I had some friends that went into this sales engineer role uh, from the same position I was in premier support. So I was really intrigued by that. And uh, I started the process by uh, meeting people in that role and asking to shadow them. I asked a lot of people and I still remember the, the people that I asked to sit in those conference rooms because this is before Zoom, before I could hop on a on a Zoom, sit in those conference rooms, listen to those calls. I learned about the profession. I probably spent a few months just learning about the profession and learning what it took to be successful, uh, building up to that first demo, which was the first presentation that I had a part of the interview. They accepted me into the interview process. I gave a demo in front of, you know, a few like regional managers and executives. uh, And the first demo I gave was absolutely horrendous, terrible. Like it was, uh, I I still remember the performance, how bad I felt coming out of that. but luckily, because I spent the time developing relationships with the folks both that I was interviewing with uh, and you know, sort of the surrounding ecosystem of people that were involved in making that decision, I remember very directly the, the feedback that I got was, uh, that was really bad, but we're going to give you a second shot. We think that you have potential. You've shown a lot of initiative throughout this process. I treated that interview process like a sales process in itself and built relationships. So they gave me another shot. And they gave me a week to refine that presentation uh, and give it a go another time. And the second time around, the feedback I got was that was good enough. That was okay, uh, and <laughs> you know that felt okay. But I was so excited to get that role. I've never been m- more excited to get a job than the job I got to be you know the fir- my my first sales engineering job because I was so excited about what it entailed. And I think the the, the moral of that story is that one, you know, as uh, an early career professional. You know, building relationships doing your research doing due diligence on both the job uh, that you're interviewing for as well as the you know the company and the role and the folks that are involved pays dividends down the line and you know it's really hard to judge somebody based on a one-hour presentation it's so much more than that and i think when you build a story around your candidacy beyond the you know final presentation um It gives you much more leverage and also helps prove that you will be, you know, a viable investment for the hiring manager. And the advice for the hiring manager would be uh, that, you know, sometimes it's uh, people are worthy of a second chance and uh, you have to think long term. It's hard to do in this environment, especially when we have, you know, so many candidates we're interviewing. Um, I interview a ton of candidates week in and week out uh and i think it's just worth you know taking a deep breath sometimes and um both understanding the final delivery of the presentation or whatever the like sort of crescendo of your interview process is but also how that person has approached interaction with the people throughout the process um and how they've approached the process uh, as a whole um so hopefully that is valuable advice for folks but um it's something that i remember to this day and i'm glad they gave me a second shot
1: yeah Super, super valuable. Uh, I mean, I think that extends beyond just the interview process. You know, a lot of folks who have been in high pressure sales meetings um, that maybe don't go quite as planned. Maybe there's like, you know, they bring on the CFO last minute, and he's just like completely derailing you or something. And but sometimes, although they feel really shitty in the moment, after. If you've done the work and built the relationships and then can call your champion or text your champion after and be like, okay, yeah. how, was that as bad as I thought it was? And you build that trust and the connectivity, you know, errors are okay. Mistakes are okay. We're human. You know, it's it's all the work leading up to it and the, the work you're going to do after that is really going to show what kind of partner or what employee you're going to be.
0: Exactly. You want to extend the lens through which at through which they're looking at you as a candidate or professional in general. It, it you know, it's thinking back to, you know, what we discussed earlier about the, the power of having a strong network and uh, you know, following people to different companies. I think a lot of people also forget, especially in this, it's a stressful environment, the economic climate that we're in right now, but how you treat people matters a lot. And, mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I give folks advice that are also early in their career that are trying to be a bit more hard charging than they need to be that you know every interaction matters and so you know the way you you know treat somebody uh, that's maybe a cross-functional counterpart the way you collaborate with somebody that really matters because that person uh, may not be somebody who is like immediately influential in your career today but tomorrow they may be at that next company that you want to go work for and they're going to say hey what did you think of Scott? And, and for better or worse, like those sort of like back channel references exist today uh, and are carry a lot of weight. And you want that person to be able to say that, you know, Zach was a good guy. He was collaborative. He treated me well and he was effective. Um, flip side of that. If you know, you were a dick, <laughs> that person to give you a glowing reveal nine, glowing review nine times out of 10. So um, how you treat people really matters. I know it seems simple, but uh, is not, it's not applied universally.
1: It does. It matters. It's always mattered. And even more so now in like a hyper connected world, right? Like maybe, you know, 20, 30 years ago, bad actors, or you don't even have to be bad actors, just meet, we'll call it medium actors, you know, yeah. who like don't care too much. Uh, they could still progress and almost like hide in the shadows. But now everyone is connected to everyone, you know, and everyone is talking and, you know, I remember I had a, a boss that said something along the lines of uh, the most impactful conversations of your career will happen when you're not in the room. And that's a crazy thing to to think about, you know, like the most important conversations that will have the biggest impact on your life, your family's life, your success, you're not even going to be present to them. And that's an accumulation of years and years of conversations that you're doing and treating people the right way. hundred percent. Yeah.
0: And you can still be super effective, hyper effective and be a good human being. I believe that. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah.
0: Absolutely possible. Yeah.
1: And you can be direct. Yeah, for sure. Being, being direct is, is okay. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think it goes back to kind of what we're talking about of like the actual presentation or demo or interview doesn't matter quite as much. Like you can deliver the worst advice or not the worst feedback to someone ever but if you have years or months of trust before and they know you and they know your values, like that's okay. You know, that's totally going to be fine.
0: Yeah. It helps you earn it. I mean, I think a lot of people too, you know, there was this whole uh, you know, when radical candor came out, a whole trend of you know direct radical feedback and everybody was always asking for feedback, constantly asking for feedback, but it's easier said than done. I think, you know, you can't, you got to earn the right to get, direct feedback and some people say they want feedback but don't really want the feedback they really just want positive feedback uh and i think the best thing you can do to get ahead of that to really get truly constructive and valuable feedback is to build a relationship as you mentioned that's really critical
1: totally totally okay so taking us back so you land this you land this role it's like your dream role you're getting you you got a second chance you made it happen you're now uh it was a sales engineer was the role sales engineer yeah yeah Question when was the sales engineer function like pioneered was who who pioneered that do do you do you know like I imagine yeah, it uh, was around that time when things started getting more technical in in software
0: well, I would say like the modern SAS se was likely instantiated around that time, but the concept of like a systems engineer, if you abstract it up a level and think about like what does this role do what it's what it's there for It's really there to be, you know, bring product and technical expertise and translate that into business value for a customer and be the essential partner to an account executive. And that concept has existed since the beginning of technology. Um, You know, you had, uh, there's a show called, I think it's called To Halt and Catch Fire, which is sort of like a take on, uh, on the early days of Apple. Uh, and they were going out and selling into in person into other companies, and the s e was the person that came in to bring they they would like ship the actual computer with them they'd plop it on the desk, plug in the cables, plug it into the projector, and they were actually like demonstrating technology in person before the days of virtual meetings. I think that's existed since likely the early seventies uh if not before, where you always needed a technical expert to help the salesperson remain credible and they could always ask different questions in that sales cycle. So that concept, you know, that evolved where software as a service where we had virtual sales meetings uh, and uh, it has become, depending on the company that you're working for, of course, a little bit more business and sales focused, I would say. Uh, but yeah, I mean, to answer your question, I think that was like the beginning of the SaaS SE and has since, you know, evolved even further to where like now the concept of a solutions consultant is much more focused on buyer enablement, and even extends to post sales to make sure the customer is successful.
1: Uh, this is a bit of a like a controversial topic, but would love your your thoughts as AI and just automation in general uh, automates a lot of the tasks that maybe an account executive would do. Um, it feels like more power uh, goes towards the more technical solutions consultant really understands it. Um, do you see a world enabled by technology where maybe those things start blending a little bit more?
0: Yeah. And I look forward to it. Yeah. I think that that is inevitable. I think there are a lot of people that are working on exciting co-pilot like technology that will augment, uh, our ability to sell and, and make it a better experience for customers as well. Um, but I think like something I've been pushing on for a long time is to further enable account executives to take some of the um, less complex or technical work off the plate of the SC, so the SE can spend time focused on the most strategic engagements. Uh, and, you know, that, of course, scales up or down depending on, you know, what segment of the market you're focused on. Uh, but, you know, if you think about it, and you know we don't have to time to go into the math right now, but... If you actually think about like the value, the, the increase in close rates that an SE brings to an opportunity relative to like the dollar per opportunity cost that you're spending or adding to the cost of goods sold or customer acquisition cost, it is well worth it in terms of the conversion rate. So an SE is actually a very easy function to invest in. And so even if there's a lot that the AE can do with technology, there's still a lot of value in having another resource on that deal to help with the conversion rates. And both of those roles can be, I think, assisted and augmented by, you know, a lot of the stuff that's in development today and even the stuff that's accessible today. Because I think, you know, a lot of uh, what I've seen in terms of the value out of, uh, the early value out of for large language models and ChatGPT and the like, is just taking a lot of the the busy work, the preparation work, uh, that detail off of the plate and accelerating that so you can focus on the things that are important.
1: Totally, totally. Kind of think we're working towards getting the insights to give us the next best action. like, Here's the best place and time to use your resources or your time and focus on this, do this. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think it, it works on both ends where, you know, the SC can automate a lot of like the human interaction part of their job. And then on the flip side, the AE, that's more like maybe human centric, they'll get enabled by technology to have all the answers they need that, you know, in these technical weeds, that maybe they're not as uh, don't have as great of understanding us.
0: I think that's, that's better. For, we care about most about the buyer. I think um, you know, ultimately, we are too inwardly focused in sales. We're always thinking about how it's going to impact me. You know, how's it going to impact our sales cycle? How you know is it going to is you know AI going to rob us from of uh, out of a job or or kind of innovate us out of a job? But I think, like ultimately, we should be thinking about is how is it going to improve the customer experience, because ultimately that's how somebody makes a decision is how uh, how the experience went, how you enabled that decision for the customer, uh, and there that technology I think does mu- a lot more to enhance the buyer experience than it does to take away you know, job functions away from sales professionals, in my opinion, which I'm excited about.
1: Yeah. As you were talking there, my head went to like its idea that technology is getting easier and easier to interact with, you know, even like non-technical mom and pop like plumbers, you know, now can have an app and they're like, oh, I, I get this. I don't need someone to like walk me through that. And you play that trend out over time, you could go, oh, you know, do we need solutions consulting if everything is so easy to use now? but then it becomes more about they are the expert in how to use the technology very contextually for your specific business yeah. you know so it almost flips you know yeah. where you're a you're unlocking the value versus showing someone how to you know 100% you got to use this drop down and things you know exactly there's
0: so much waste in the sales process today where you know we're doing things just because we have to like go through this laundry list of tasks and it does take away from our ability especially in high volume environments to speak to the specific value it's going to provide to that customer. So that's why I'm not worried about it because I am excited that a, the, the modern interface people are used to, let me take a step back. The reason I'm excited about a lot of this new technology is that, you know, in the past AI has been a difficult interface for the average internet user, right. To see the potential impact because you weren't interacting with it. Like a human, you had to talk to an engineer, to you know engage to build some code for you to even you had to have some background in statistics to kind of understand how you know this is producing business value and now it's like a chat-like interface which is very similar to how you interact with a search engine and it's human-like in how you interact and so it's very easy for uh, the average person to understand the value that it's going to provide and i think in a very in a short amount of time, very easy for the average you know, techno- technology sales professional um, to interact with these services in a way that will help them understand the customers that they're speaking to in a much shorter amount of time and make sure that your message is rooted in value and you're spending more time there versus, as you mentioned, spending time just giving them a one-on-one education on the product or service. And that's where we're going to be spending our time. And that's where I'm hoping that we see, and we, I, I'm, I would bet that we see uh, the most impact of this technology is is tracking us away from the one on one education level demos to focused on like tailored business value and improving the buyer experience.
1: Yeah. We we you know, we've been talking about consultative selling forever, but you get at that point you actually become a, a true consultant to yeah. their their business. And, and
0: yeah, it's it, it helps too because and that's why and I say there still is a lot of waste in the sales cycle because when you're truly, truly consultative selling, it takes a lot of time and energy to do it. You know, you want to go in and you want to do your research and understand everything there is to know about that company, the people that you're selling to. You go on their LinkedIn profile uh, and it's not, uh, these are pretty like low order tasks, right? You're just spending time to do the research and, and, and soaking it all up. Really impossible to do that when you're working on like five or six demos a day. Accelerate that process, those five or six demos a day can be a lot more tailored.
1: Totally, Uh, and people may have heard me say this uh, thought experiment before, but I remember super early in my career, I would play this thought experiment when I was like doing any sort of demos. It's like, am I providing enough value that this prospect, this person I'm talking to, would pay me just for this time that we have spent together? And by the way, Included is this technology, you know, and and I would try and play that out. And I feel like that's where we're kind of going to get to. If they can self-serve and like kind of figure it out, they're talking to you only because they really need to and want to and see the value in it. 100%. Um, okay, so we opened the AI box there. So uh, It's inevitable, uh, we gotta right? Go, we got to go down it. Can't we got to go down it. it. <laughs> um, at Rippling right now, is your team currently... Running some AI experiments, not like the Rippling, like product side, but like your internal team. Is there anything you're messing around with?
0: There are some tools that we're still also trying to figure out what it looks like from you know data privacy and like enterprise right. policy perspective uh, to of determine course. which tools we can invest in. Luckily, you know we already have existing agreements with some tools that uh, I can't mention directly here, but that already have like very quickly incorporated a lot of this new technology. Uh, and have been, you know, super beneficial for us. Like, you know, meeting summaries go that go, they go a long way. Like even for me, when I spend a lot of time uh, using tools that record our meetings and those tools now provide a summary uh, that I can also, uh, I can use a prompt to, you know, do perform further inquiries, which are super mm-hmm. valuable. And a, like a easy, a real easy example of this is, you know, when I'm looking at a call And I want to know whether or not that SE has differentiated us competitively against a specific competitor or otherwise, I can just ask it and it will provide the snippet and it will provide the detail. And that has accelerated my ability to provide more feedback across a team than I've ever been able to do before. When historically, even like six months ago, I had to listen to that entire call. Even at two x, you know, we're talking about at minimum like your twenty minutes, right? That's a lot of time that's spent. Mm-hmm. Now I'm like focusing that into literally five minutes, so that's a huge you know value add for me. And then even things like, you know, we're working on, for example, with demos, uh, making sure folks are a- asking open ended questions. And so I've got a prompt that I can run built into this tool that we already have approved that says, "Tell me if this person show me where Scott asked an open ended question," and they will show examples of where those questions were asked and then i can use that to provide feedback and coaching and i'm open about it too where you know i think some people are hesitant they they don't know if they should hide their use of these services like hey look at this you know obviously if you're it's
1: super funny yeah you're <laughs> you like see that you know, high school and you
0: write a yeah. paper with chat gpt probably i don't know if you want to volunteer that necessarily <laughs> yeah but in business you can say i just say like hey look i use this for a summary it's pretty good what do you think and they're like yeah that's that's accurate Let's talk about it. Let's let's have a dialogue around it. And it's just saved the time of all the busy work to get to that point and added a ton of value in, in, in a short amount of time.
1: It's a great example. And I love the fact that, that it's like, it's augmentation, right? So I imagine in those scenarios, so you take your human knowledge, let's say you have like Devin and Bob and Krista on your team, you know that, you know, well, Krista doesn't usually ask for next steps and so you can take your human knowledge go quickly ask ai you know did chris to get next steps and then like you don't have to listen to that whole thing to find that one thing and then you know same thing or you know yeah. bob doesn't set an agenda or whatever it may be and you have that knowledge and then you can use ai to quickly find you know if they're yeah. doing it or not and coach against it.
0: That's what they say. There was a paper that came out recently within the last month. I think it was like a Harvard Business School and Boston Consulting Group. They had this concept of like centaurs and cyborgs and the cyborg, they, they basically boiled it down that you know, people are a lot more productive when they use these services in the right way, particularly chat Uh And the there's different types of users that they, in the study they identified. The centaur is one that, Will segment certain tasks to say I use AI for this task, but but not for this task. The most effective users are those we call cyborgs that integrate it into their workflow, or they're just going to use it for tasks, but also like use human validation to make sure that it's accurate. Uh, and I find that just really interesting. I, I uh, am striving to be a cyborg personally.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I like it, but not not in terms of promotion. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't ring any bells, but I'll have to I'll have to give it a read and we'll put it in the the show notes yeah, for it. That's one of the best at, I've read. Austin well. awesome
0: Consulting Group is coming out, some really good stuff on uh yeah. just the breakdown of technology and how it applies.
1: I actually uh I don't know where I got it from. It wasn't my idea, but at least for the first like three months when um uh like ChatGPT first came out, I just always had it open on yeah. like a browser. Just because then it would kind of sort of like train me into using it more and I could find different use cases, which was super cool and helpful. And I don't know why I stopped, but uh, I should, (laughs) I should do it again. It was definitely helpful, Yeah. Uh, but it, I think I was like almost to the point where it was becoming automatic versus, you know, I was still very much like a centaur where I was like, Oh, I could use this for this. I could use this for this instead of completely just like putting it into my, my workflow and soon enough. Yeah. You know, I think the best builders in AI are building with that approach anyway. Where it's it's going to be in all our workflows, whether we we like it or not.
0: That's the cool part about all of this. I think too is that there are just some companies that are just well poised to immediately benefit from it. Large data sets of any shape or size, integrate it right into it, and you know they can hit the ground running, and they will, like in the next six months. And then some that are really trying hard to integrate it in areas where perhaps it's not a fit, but. Yeah. It's a new paradigm. It's just interesting to think about. Fascinating.
1: Super fascinating. I think it's going to be a much crazier six months than most people think it's going to be uh, across uh, across B2B great. SaaS. Uh, but it's going to be very exciting. It's a cool time to to be doing what we're doing. All right. Um, this is awesome, man. So I've got a question for you. This comes from one of our founders. And thanks, everyone, for always sending us in great questions. You can always send them to questions at gtmfund.com. Uh, We get a lot, but we try and answer as many as we can. Uh, This one I think is, is perfect for you. Uh, I try and tease out ones that are relevant. Um, This is, let's see. Okay. So from one of our founders and it says we're a series, a company. When should we look at building a solutions consulting team?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I get that question a lot actually. And I think uh, it depends on the type of technology you're selling. And first, You want to look at how the account executives are spending their time. If they're spending their time on tasks or activities uh, that are not necessarily in the best interest of moving deals forward or preventing them uh, from working on additional opportunities, that's when you want to start thinking about pulling in an SE type resource. And I always recommend that, you know, the first SE you hire, the ideal first hire is somebody from the inside. You know, a, somebody in the support team, on the engineering team, somebody who uh, has a passion for sales and maybe they're, it's a developing passion. They don't have to be immediately passionate. But like ultimately, I think where I see folks fail is that they pull in somebody that's a product expert that that person doesn't like talking to customers or doesn't like sales. It's never going to be successful. Uh, so you need to have somebody who understands that this is a sales role ultimately. Uh, And, you know, somebody, of course, that has a deep product expertise and is collaborative enough to work with the account executives. Uh, And there's not a perfect formula for that, but you can do pretty simple math to say, like, if I spend money on this person in this role, add that to the cost of goods sold or customer acquisition cost, uh, what expected win rate percentage should I get or maintain across the opportunities that the AEs are supporting? Uh, and that will give you uh, sort of a some simple math that you can use to determine you know the whether or not it's the right time to hire and spend money or invest in that function. Um, also, like I would say, even Series A, depending on the size of the sales team, you're generally you generally see like a CTO or VP of Eng or somebody like that popping in and doing the demos. And I've seen that a lot. You want to take that person away from those day to day demos and bring somebody in that could supplement that. You still bring them in, of course, for the big deals as an executive. Uh, and uh, an executive sponsor of sorts, but um, that's generally when we start. We want to start to peel away the CTO when they're spending most of their time, or the VP of engineering spending most of their time on deals versus uh, you know running the technical side of the business.
1: Uh, is there any benchmarks for uh, a bump in expected win rate? I know everything you know depends complexity, you know average deal size, everything. But in your experience, is there sort of a benchmark of hey, when you bring in? A solutions consultant typically you see a bump in your win rate by three percent, four percent one and a half percent like
0: yeah, I mean, I would say anywhere from like three to uh six or eight x um that's not a super scientific response, but you also it's important to look at win rate for deals that are beyond the second stage, so they have to be like qualified opportunities um I think some people incorrectly look at the you know entire life cycle of an opportunity and they generally wouldn't be involved early on. So qualified opportunities, you should expect, you know, like a three plus X uh, win rate increase. And that otherwise um, you need to take a hard look about, you know, what what role the SEs are playing. They also play like a significant role in qualifying out of deals. So bringing somebody in like that, why win rate is an interesting proxy and important. You also, you know, understand that like the, the solutions consultant does a lot more, like especially in an early stage company. You want that person to own feedback to product because they're interfacing with more customers in that in that capacity than anybody else. You want them to own understanding sort of like what the ideal customer profile looks like and, and continues to be. Like that person is gonna be fundamental to evolving your product market fit as well, because you know they're gonna be out there with customers hearing feedback, good or bad getting that back to the product organization or equivalent. And so again, if that person comes in and if you don't see a bump in win rate right away, that's okay. Just making sure that you're understanding those other components and the other value adds for the role.
1: That's a good call out, especially at the the early stage, you could have, you know, an AE that has happy ears. They want to bring in this big sexy enterprise logo. And like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, your S E sitting there like we're not going to get to that for two years. Like yeah. there, there's no way this is happening. This is way too complex and can kind of bring them back to earth. And you know, that can get out of hand quick that AE could sell his VP of sales on the fact that this is a real opportunity that VP of sales could get bought in. He then goes to the VP of eng switches to product roadmap. You do all, all and there's nothing even there, right? It, I've seen it get out of hand very, very quickly. and can be, a kiss of death so absolutely
0: uh, yeah and think about how much waste there is in that that whole scenario you just described right i mean like it's a good ae who a good charisma traditional charismatic ae can keep the vp of sales sort of in tow throughout the process and then at the end of the day you realize there's like a technical deficiency that they overlooked uh and you could have been spending all your time on another opportunity or a series of opportunities, right? So I really do think like, I, I see the SE function as ultimately like a sales efficiency uh, driver as well, because you are able to identify the good fit up front and make sure that we're focusing on the right deals at the right time. And those uh, those chief revenue officers are equivalent who really know, know to look to their a- SE first to validate their forecast. They wanna go through the top deals and say like, Scott, what do you think of this deal? And the SE generally has very good instincts, even if it's not formulaic to say like, this deal stinks. Here's why I've only spoken to like a couple of people, uh, we're not a great fit for what they're trying to do, or, you know, it's going to take six years for us to develop this product or feature they need. Uh, and more often than not too often, I think CROs sales leaders don't look to the SE function for that sort of feedback.
1: Well, I'm sold. If I was an early stage founder, I'm getting a solutions consultant ASAP.
0: Yeah. Well, think about it this way, too. Like, there's a lot out there. I think, you know, the company Vivid has done a great job sort of championing this concept is that you can actually get more out of your AEs adding an SE than you can scaling the number of AEs who are operating inefficiently. So rather than hiring more AEs, hire more SEs and, and increase the quota. I know people AEs hate hearing that, but they don't mind having a bigger quota if they have a better win rate against that target. And it means they make more money as well. But making each AE more efficient by way of introducing the SE, uh, I think, is a better strategy over the long run, especially now when we have to do more with less.
1: Totally, And in that scenario, you're not burning through as much TAM, you know, as yeah. well. You know, you're, 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 yeah, there's a lot, a lot of benefit. Um, last thing, and then I want to go to the final two questions. So you said there's two things that should drive the decision. So one is complexity and then the account executive activities. What are the activities they're doing that are non-revenue generating? Complexity of product it feels uh, it feels vague um, you know it's, it's tough. Uh, how do you measure complexity of product? Is it more the buyer understands after a 40 minute demo or you know that complexity piece you yeah. know, how, how do you kind of gauge it?
0: Yeah, it's a little soft, but I, I think of it like a there's a, like a complexity high water mark, or let's put it this way it, there's a credibility high water mark. Uh, and when you're sitting on a call with an account executive and they're quickly out of their depth as it relates to the technology, uh, then that's when you know you need a technical expert or somebody that can speak credibly to the solution that you're providing to a customer. Um, so that's easy to, to understand and tell, and especially for really technical products that are out there. Um, on the flip side, you may hire, especially early stage, some AEs that are more technically competent. But they shouldn't be spending as much time as they are solutioning with customers um, because that time that they spent solutioning with customers could be spent elsewhere, driving more opportunities, doing more outbound, developing more relationships. So you really do have to think about, I think, at a certain point, you know, especially Series A, like what do you really want your A's to do? How much do you want them to take on? And how does that contribute to the sales efficiency that you're looking to achieve? Because then... That will help you determine when to bring an SE on to take away some of the sort of uh, the stuff that you shouldn't uh, a, hold an AE responsible for. Um, the top complex technical demos, passing off the post-sales, you know, things that would be better suited for you know a deep expert.
1: Beautiful. Uh, well, that was a great, thoughtful uh, response. And thanks for whoever sent in that, uh, that question. Uh, it's a good one. I feel like we get that a lot. So I'll now be able to push our founders to say... Hey, go listen to this this podcast with Zach. So that, yeah, that's helpful. Um, so, final two questions. I always keep them the same, uh, and they are intentionally vague. Um, first one is: you know, what is one thing that revenue leaders believe to be true that you think is bullshit, or at least no longer serving us?
0: I think I don't know if I would say this is something that revenue leaders believe to be true, but I think it's a blind spot for salespeople overall as that we still feel like being transparent with a prospect is somehow uh, diminishing our ability to move a sales cycle forward. And I mean that in the the context of the value that you provide. Like, I believe that we can be more honest, transparent upfront in a sales cycle to say, like, why are you looking at our product and service? Let's get real on the business value that it's actually going to provide. And way earlier on in the sales process, agree on a mutual why for why you would continue this engagement with us and like i think we ignore or have a blind spot to all the research that customers and prospects are doing on their own and they're barely talking to us and i think it remains true this is not a new concept but like 70 percent of the sales process is when you're not there um and we don't embrace that to the extent that we should and just be more comfortable with being transparent about the value we provide whether or not customers are a good fit in in volunteering that up front, because I think that could be really powerful and really leaning into the concept of self-service materials and resources, enabling a customer to facilitate that 70% of the buying process when you're not there in a way that is uh, much more um, high fidelity and controlled by the company. If that makes sense.
1: Makes total sense. It's, It's like, you know, getting that mutual why up front, and then also like shelving your ego almost. And if the most simple path for them to solve their problem doesn't involve you, you know, just get out of the way and like give them the resources they need, push them in the right direction, you know, make introductions to a better technology provider, whatever it may be, again, kind of goes full circle to what we talked to at the beginning, you know, tech is so small. So if you whether they're, the solution is your technology or not, and you help them solve that problem, that's going to come back around, you know, in one shape or another.
0: Yeah, we think that people care about our sales process. They don't care. And we also think, like, it's, I think it's kind of funny, is you forget that you're dealing with human beings, right? These are consumers. They're not just people that buy software 100% of the time. They also, you know, are on Netflix Oh, they're on the internet. They're like consuming content in new ways. Their attention spans are shorter than ever, and we treat them like they have the time to go through a one-hour discovery call every time and a one-hour demo that's delivered in the same way as we did previously. Why not just embrace the fact that you know, they're on TikTok, consuming stuff at like you know, thirty seconds a time, thirty seconds at a time, uh, and provide media and content in that format so they consume it. By the time they get to you, they're more educated. They've got the message that you. Wanted to deliver, and then you facilitate the buying process throughout. And it's surprising to me that we just haven't embraced that uh, you know more universally.
1: Couldn't agree more. Let them self serve everything they can, and then when you're on a Zoom, you're just working towards solving the problem or and moving it forward. Like, are we yeah. doing this? What what's going on? Like you know, yeah. you don't want to waste your time. I don't want to waste your time. What is the next steps here? How do we make this happen? You know, I, I'm totally with you on just like that upfront. You know it was drilled into me that it gets harder to ask the questions the longer a process goes on. So if you ask them up front, you know, that's so much easier to get on the same page. Yes. Just make it a pleasant buying experience. Totally. totally. All right. Final question. I'll let you go. Um, Is what's one thing right now that's working for the team at, at Ripley? We're really working on this quarter
0: on uh, creating more video content. I really believe in the power of video and scaling Uh, our demo efforts in a way that uh, kind of speaks to the previous concept, enabling buyers where they are. And I really like to use video in that way. we have a lot of products that deliver a lot of value for customers uh, with a lot of like technical or uh, detailed nuance. And I think it's important for us to create more content that we can deliver to customers. So by the time they get to us, we're dealing with, you know, the more complex or uh, detailed issues and not doing a ton of education on a single demo. So that's what we're working on. It's not you know, rocket science. It's something that we've done in the past at other companies as well. But I think you know the technology to deliver those demos is better than it ever has been.
1: Absolutely, I love leaning into that. Video is definitely how people want to consume these days. Uh, it takes the load off of someone having to go and explain themselves again and again. How many times do we say the same thing in our jobs every day? You know, just... Send, send a video and especially there's you know ai video tools now like like tavis is a company that that we're in that yeah. you can create these videos that feel like a a tailored custom experience now um, exactly. which is it's going to be cool to see yeah. play out. I'm
0: excited to where to see where that all goes over the next number of months i would say years but it's definitely months
1: it's months yeah. for sure it's gonna have weird implications too uh but there will be great uh great business value for sure all right, my friends. Um, well, thanks for jumping on. I really enjoyed that that conversation. It was good to to hang out with you. Um, if people want to, you know, learn more, uh, what's the best way to connect with you? Are You a Twitter guy, LinkedIn. Uh, what uh, what's the best way to connect?
0: Oh, uh, I would say LinkedIn is the best. Cool. Yeah, I go in and out Perfect. of Twitter, but yeah, Z L A W R Y K on LinkedIn, easy to find. Beautiful,
1: beautiful. Well, thank you, brother, and for all those uh, who listened with us. Thank you so much. We do appreciate it. And of course, listening is one thing. Executing is a whole other thing. So hopefully you can apply some of this uh, to your business and uh, help you scale your company. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for having me.